Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to study your word and to worship you. We ask you to bless this time. May your spirit anoint and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Isaiah chapter 48. We're going to be starting on verse 5. We started out uh, in the first couple of verses uh, two weeks ago. <laughs> that God says, hear his voice. And he says he's going to call upon the people. And he says, I declare the former things before they happen. In other words, he tells the future ahead of time. And that is one of the things we know about the scriptures is that, it, is that the Bible tells us ahead of time what's going to happen. And I've heard estimates as high as a quarter to a, as, as low as a quarter to as high as a third of the Bible is prophecy. Quarter, I believe. I'm not so sure I believe a third, but... Depends on how you measure prophecy, but there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible. Uh, to get to the third, I think you have to stretch some of the verses <laughs> to, to call them prophecy, but I'm not going to argue, argue the fact with them. I've never counted all the verses that are prophecy to find out how much they are. A lot of it has been fulfilled, which is why we know that what we is yet to be fulfilled can be so, counted on. So, so starting at verse 5. I have, even from the beginning, declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I showed it to you. Lest you should say, my idol has done them, or my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard, see all this, and, and, you, and will not be declared, will you not declare it? I have showed you new things from this time, even hidden things that you did not know them. You were created... They were created now and not from the beginning, even before the day when you were heard them not, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. Yea, you heard not, yea, you knew not, yea, from the time of your ear was not open, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and has called a transgressor and was called a transgressor from the womb. So here God is saying, I told you the future so that you would know it was me. And that way you wouldn't say that your idols had helped you, is what he says here. Uh, he says, I have declared it from the beginning. Before it came to pass, I showed it to you, lest you should say my idols have, made, have done them, my graven images and my molten images have commanded them. And you know, this is kind of interesting that the Jews kept drifting into idol worship when God had done so many really big things for them and cared for them. He delivered them from Egypt. He created the, the heavens and the earth. He created a wonderful nation from Abraham. And yet they kept drifting into idols. And we've been looking at this. Isaiah has plenty of very funny you know, statements. You went into the forest. You cut down a tree. You, with a third of it, you cooked your meal. A third of it, you, you built an image. And with a third of it, you did something else. And he goes, and then you said, this is, this is my God. <laughs> I, I, I made my image, and now this is my God. And it doesn't, you know, it, it's hard for me to understand people bowing down before an image that they create. Now, I know that we do it ourselves, but we don't literally create images the way they did to bow down. We make our images work, family, uh, all kinds of things. We create our own images, but we don't have a physical image that we bow down to and say this is our God. And even in that, we don't technically say that the things we're worshiping are, is our God normally. It shocks a lot of people to think of the gods that they have in their life. 
you know, whether it be money and everything they do is geared toward making money. And for some people, it's family. Everything they do, the family is what's important and the family becomes God. And this is something that happens. And here he says, I'm telling you this, that you don't think your gods did it. I'm telling you ahead of time. You have heard, seen all this, and will not declare it. I, I, I have showed you new things from, the, from this time and have, from even hidden things, and you did not know them. Over and over, God says, I told you this was going to happen. When Jesus was born and came to this world, the scribes and the Pharisees, though they knew the Messianic prophecies, did not recognize Jesus. Part of the problem was they didn't know enough about Jesus to know that he was born in Bethlehem. All they knew was Jesus was from Galilee and Nazareth of Galilee. And they knew the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem and they never got to know him well enough to know that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was of the seed of David, and that everything was followed in the way that God said it would happen and yet they were blind because everything they expected to happen did not happen. They did not understand that he came to die and that there was going to be a long gap between the time he died and the time that we as Christians are still waiting for, the millennial kingdom, when he will reign for a thousand years on this world, out of Jerusalem, when he returns and he steps on Mount Olivet and Mount Olivet splits in half and a stream runs both directions and refreshes the Dead Sea and makes it alive and, and the River Jordan starts flowing the opposite way. <laughs> and he says, that's what they're waiting for. Jesus didn't fulfill that. Jesus didn't come and get rid of Rome off their back. He didn't set up the kingdom of the Jews where Jerusalem was the center of all government. And they go, see, he's not the Messiah. And that's exactly what the majority of the Jews will say today. Well, can't, couldn't be Jesus. Okay, maybe he was born in Bethlehem, maybe, you know, and all these other things. Yes, he died, as, as the, but they don't recognize a suffering, suffering Messiah. But he didn't come and make Israel the center of everything. And they don't understand. And we didn't understand either at first. When Jesus walked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he spent the entire hours that it took to walk to tell them about the Messiah, starting in Genesis, who were Moses, all the way through the prophets, revealing that he was in the Old Testament. And then when they finally realized who he was, he, he just translated it out to, to someplace else. And they started the quick journey back to back to Jerusalem, and I think it was a lot quicker. I don't think they were, they were slowly walking on the trip back. Not from fear, because they were walking at night, so they, that would have been fearful. But I think they were so excited. We have got to tell the other disciples <laughs> that Jesus is alive, and we're going to tell him all that he told us. What kind of Bible study would that have been? I, to, to see Jesus in the entire Old Testament. And we bring him up all the time, and we're starting to see him more and more but to have, have had Jesus walk through the entire Old Testament and saying, this was me, this was me, this is 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 me. Now, that one has taken a long time. Uh, but he says, I've shown you all these things and you did not know them. It is so easy for us to not see what God says is coming. Okay. Um, Verse 6. Mm -hmm. And I have shown thee new things, even hidden things. So new thing and a hidden thing. Were they paying attention 
All right. The new things would have been all the prophecies that had already happened. Hidden things to them would have been Gentiles coming to God. Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins and be in the fulfillment of the sacrifice. Much of it was hidden. And I have a suspicion that even for us, there are hidden things in the, in the prophecies that we're not, we may not be expecting to, to happen the way they happen. And it's kind of funny when you study end times or eschatology and you see these people who map out everything. It's going to happen just this way. And I'm thinking the Jews thought that too. So I want to, be very, I want to hold it very loosely. <coughs> yes, the prophecies tell us a lot of what's going to happen, but we need to be careful before we get dogmatic about prophecy. This has to happen. This has to happen. It has to happen in this order because that's where people really get into trouble. The Jews got in trouble and didn't recognize what was happening. And so he has things that are new. You know, you're going to have a king. David is king. He's anointed king. He's your king. Uh, at this time, that's a long past. But And he says the Messiah is coming, which was obvious. A virgin is going to give birth. So they're waiting for a virgin to give birth. And, but yet it was hidden in one sense because they didn't know who or when. So there's a new thing that's coming and then hidden things. And we still have hidden things out there that we think we understand sometimes. And we need to be careful. Because how many times have we read the Bible, and I'm guilty of this myself, thinking a verse says something, and then four or five years later studying it again and realizing, wow, I had no clue what that verse was talking about. I was totally wrong. And I've even seen it in my lifetime in the world of eschatology that there were certain things that, that they were absolutely sure were going to happen in a certain way. And yet we're seeing things look totally different in our day and age. You know, When it talked about them being attacked from the north of Israel, everybody goes, it's got to be Russia. Russia's the great aggressor out there. Russia's the only no nation out there that could ever, ever be there. And now we're seeing the, re the rise of the Persian, old Persian Empire, the rise of the, the Islam, Islamic world through the Persian Empire and saying, wow, they hate Israel. You know, the Russians kind of hated Israel, but the Persians, being Middle Easterners and having conquered them in the past, really hate Israel. They want to see them wiped out. And we're starting to see everybody start thinking, uh, Iraq, Iran, not just, you know, there's still a lot of people say Russia, and Russia will be part of the end days when the whole world moves against Israel. But we want to be careful how dogmatic we get about prophecy, because that can get us in trouble over and over again. I'm not saying don't study it, but don't get too dogmatic about it. I am never all that excited about prophecy. I, you know, and I know that drives a lot of people nuts, but I can explain prophecy. I can teach it. We've done it here. We've done the Revelation series. We've done the Daniel series. We've done Ezekiel. And I can teach it. I understand the current views on it and what it says. But I would rather teach people how to live today, <laughs> how to walk today, how to walk tomorrow, how to be ready for whatever comes in the future, and be in a position where they can recognize it when the Spirit touches them and says, here we are, here's another prophecy fulfilled. But that we live on a day-to-day -day basis following God and being anointed and being changed in our life, to me, is much more important than spending all my time in prophecy. Now, the one thing I do know, if I was to put a big sign up there saying, we're going to be studying the book of Revelation, we will get a larger attendance, just as we did on our Tuesday study when we did Revelation. We ended up having the room full because everybody loves to know what's coming. But it really doesn't have great value to us on a day-to-day -day life. 
It's nice to know. We won't be surprised. We won't be surprised about all the problems that are coming. But I really want us to be ready to live tomorrow. How do I witness to this person that I'm going to? How do I live in a way that draws people to Christ in the first place? How do I answer their questions? It's much more important to me than spending all my time talking about this is what's going to happen. Because I don't know when it's going to happen. It looks like it's going to happen soon. But that's been said since the, the Apostles' day. It's, it's going to be soon. They fully expected Jesus to come in their lifetime. They had all the conditions. Rome was, Rome was making life miserable for them, was killing lots of Christians, had the, what they would have called the Antichrist saying, I am God. You know, they looked in and said, we've got it. That was 2,000 years ago. The one thing I know is we are a lot closer today than we were 2,000 years ago. And even if he comes 3,000 years from now, you know, another 1,000 years from now, we're still closer every day to that time. And I want to see us be able to live for today. Knowing what's in the future is great. Knowing that Gen uh, Revelation 22 says God wins and he creates a new heaven and earth that we get to rule with him is good. Knowing that if I die, I get to go to heaven and spend time with him until, until we come back and rule with him over the thousand-year millennial kingdom is wonderful. If I live long enough and I get raptured out of this world and don't have to die and I get glorified immediately, wonderful. It doesn't matter to me. As I'm getting my grandkids, I'd love to see us go a lot longer and have some peace and a, and a great revival and see them grow in a, get a chance to grow in a Christian world and not a miserable world that's described. But if they have to, then God will give them the grace to go through it. And that is the great news, is God will give us the grace to go through whatever he asks us to go through, no matter what it is. He has not abandoned the people who have given their lives for, for him. He does not abandon the martyrs, even though we might look at it and say, God, how could you do that? Because God knows that when people get martyred and they stand strong for him, his name is lifted up, and many people come to Christ because of their deaths. All through Fox's Book of Martyrs, we see that, and we even see it in our day and age where people are killed for the name of Jesus Christ, and people respond and say, wow, there's something to that. Because most people do not have anything they would truly die for. You know, very few people have anything that they would die for, and if it is, it might be family. Might be. Now, they'll give up a lot in many cases. They'll give up their family. They'll give up their, their lives and sleep and everything for work and money, which is becoming a god. But most of them aren't necessarily willing to just, you know, if they were told, you're, you're, keep your job or die, most of them would say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, see, see, see you later. I'll go start another job someplace. <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, for Christians, if we're truly Christ, you know, reject Christ or die, and it's like, okay, send me home. You know, send me home and he gives us the grace for it. And that's the good news. The power that he gives us. And he, he says, I've shown you these hidden things and you did not know them. He, you, don't, you don't even see the things I put plain before your face. You know, and this is what ends up happening. And we were discussing on the way up here, you know, things like evolution. You know, evolution came along and people in that, in the... 1850s and 1860s tried to come up with all kinds of ways to figure out how Genesis 1, 1 through chapter 3 could be meshed with science. And they came up with a whole bunch of stupid ideas. 
because they didn't say God's word is true and I'm going to stand on his word. Now, we live in a generation where science has really caught up and, and shown us that there's holes in evolution all over the place. And yet the schools teach evolution as if it's true in elementary school when kids are very pliable and don't think because they're told, believe this teacher. You know, in college, evolution doesn't exist in college hardly at all anymore because that's when people start coming back and saying, no, this doesn't make sense. And we see this over and over again. The world is teaching our children. And the sad thing is I see Christians giving their kids over to the world and saying, well, when they're older, we'll help them make the right decision. After they've been bombarded with lies and deceit from Satan, then we come back and say, okay, let's, let's try to teach them God's thoughts. And you know, the, the statistics tell you that if you're not saved before 12 years old, the chances of getting saved are very slim. Under, under 12, it's like 60 to 70% chance of getting saved when you hear the gospel. When you get into an adult age, it's almost 10 or 15% chance of getting saved. It drops significantly because Jesus said to, that you must be like a little child, have the faith that just says, I believe it. Too many people try to figure it all out. You know, let me just figure all, all this salvation stuff out. You want, want every single one of my questions answered before I will turn to God. Children don't do that. We as adults go, well, I don't understand the Trinity. I can't understand the Trinity. You're right. You'll never understand the Trinity. No matter how long you study it, you'll never fully understand the Trinity. Well, I don't understand how one person can die for your sins. Well, don't worry about it. God does. Well, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. It's by faith. And then the more we study it, the more we begin to understand it. And I've said this over and over again. I hope that I never understand everything that's in the Bible. Because if I can get to the place where I understand everything that's in the Bible, my God is too small. I, if I can understand it all, then I become God because I am now smarter than, than the person that I'm studying. And that's not a place to be. I hope I never get to the place where I understand everything. Huh? Well, I think I do. That would be even worse thinking that I understand it all. And unfortunately, I've met people like that. There are some that think that way. Um, says verse 7, They are created now and not from the beginning, even before the day which you heard them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. So in other words, he's saying they were out there. They were out there. He says they, they are created now and not from the beginning. The beginning of what? Before the beginning. God exists before time. And this is something that is mind-boggling. God created this world... He created man knowing that man was going to sin. And already had a plan for man's redemption before we had sinned. You know, and that is just like, okay, God, number one, why did you do it? <laughs> you know, that was, that's the one thing I would hope, you know, maybe want God to answer. God, why would you have done this all in the first place? You know, but before time began, he knew what was going to happen. Not just with Adam and Eve, not just up to the flood with Noah and, and all those people, not up to uh, Exodus, not to Jesus Christ, but all the way through to the end of the millennial kingdom and the white throne judgment and the new creation of the heavens and the earth and everything that happens after that, he knows about. Because he is God. 
and he is outside of time. And, you know, this is mind-boggling. When God tells the future, for him, he's not telling the future. He's just telling the story of what he already knows from his perspective has happened. Not will happen, but from God's perspective, it has happened. Because he's outside of time and dwells in the entirety of time, dwells inside God. So God says, well, this is what's going to happen. It's not, it might happen. Not if all these certain things happen, it's going to happen. He is just telling the story of what, from his perspective, perspective has already happened. And this is why when he says that we are perfect in Christ and God dwells and deals with us, the Father deals with us, he already deals with us as we will be because from his perspective, we are. From his perspective, we are already perfect. Not just because he declared us perfect, which is true. Not because we are being sanctified in our time, which is true. But because he lives outside of time, he is already with us in our heavenly glorified position to be able to see what he sees us as perfect. It's mind-boggling to think about how God sees us. For we're fearfully wonderfully made. That <laughs> it's it's all there that God says, not just that we will be, but from his perspective, we are. He already knows what we will, well, from our perspective, what we will be. And he is already dealing with us because that's how he is already interacting with us. Because outside of our time, it runs totally different. You know, and this is the interesting thing that God deals with us differently because he doesn't see us the way we see ourselves. We see ourselves maybe as a work in progress if we're really you know, following scripture. We see ourselves as being sanctified. Sometimes we see ourselves as not worthy and, and critical of ourselves and judging ourselves all the time of all the mistakes that we make and saying, you know, we're just totally worthy, we're worthless, we don't know what God's doing. We grow and then we start seeing ourselves the way, God, you know, I'm being made perfect. God has already seen, sees us as perfect. He declares us perfect the moment we're saved. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ and he sees us as perfect because he knows what we will be and he's already dealing with us as what we will be. Now, the Holy Spirit gets to deal with us in our sanctification. He gets to see us each day having to be perfected. And I know how often do us we grieve the Holy Spirit <laughs> by not doing things the way we know we're supposed to do it and, follow, and choosing to be disobedient, choosing to sin. And he says, I've declared them, you know, lest you should know them before I, before I knew them, nothing happens. We, we cannot know things before God knows them. Yeah. And this is the wonderful thing, and I've said this many times, you will never hear God say, I didn't know that was going to happen. Okay? We'll never hear that from him. No matter how bad we think things are and how messed up we think things are and how out of control we think they are, it did not surprise God. And he's trying to teach us something through those actions. The hard thing for us is to listen to what he's trying to teach us. Now, of course, I've said this. The first thing we look at is to say, do I deserve, you know, did I sin and do I deserve this? Am I living under the consequences? But the good news about that is even when we live in the consequences, the scripture says all things work together for good. Mm -hmm. Not 
All the things I do work together. God didn't say all the things I'm doing work together for good, and all the things you do don't work together for good. He said all things work together for good. So even when I have totally messed up my life and I'm living under the consequences of sin, God says that those will work out for good. Now, as I say all the time, it, there's one word that is not in there. It is not all things work together for my good, but all things work together for good. All right? And that may be for somebody else looking at us to say, well, I'm not going to do what they do. <laughs> you know, it would be for their good. And we get to be an example. You know, and hopefully that's not what most of our life is, but I do know that those are times when there are times when that's true. There's been times in my life when I look at it and say, God, I can't see how this is any good for anybody at all, but I'm going to hold on to the fact that it is for good, but it sure wasn't for my good that I can see. For good for those who are called. Did you leave out the the? The good. Yeah, it's for, not my. For the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Mm. It, does that clarify it a little bit? Um, I, would I would just leave it as what it says. Well, that's what All things work together for good for those that are called according uh, to the purpose of God. So there's no articles in that sentence. There's no pronoun in that sentence for mine. Well, somebody interpreted it that way? Lots of people interpret it that way. Oh, I, I wouldn't have done that on my own. Yeah, no, it's, it's spoken all the time by, the, by leaders. You know, that all things will be, you know, for your good. And that's not what it is. That's prosperity gospel. God will use what I go through for good. For whose good? His good. Whatever he defines good as. Now, as we get further and further away, we normally realize that what we went through, even when it looked like it was totally, totally bad to us at the time, we find out that it wasn't all bad. It strengthened us. It gave us strength. You know, one of the greatest examples I've used, and I don't do this to say that I'm special, but I went through a gout attack for six months on crutches. God, and I go, God, I don't understand how this is good. I don't like this at all. I did all my duties and did all, you know, served him and preached, you know, preached from the front, you know, on my Wednesday nights. I taught the, I, I did my Sunday school superintendent on my crutches. About a year later, somebody said, you know, you really encouraged me by continuing to serve God when you were in obvious pain, and it really made me decide to, to start trusting God more. You know, all that pain wasn't necessary for me. It was for them. Now, why God had to put me through pain for them, I don't know, but it, it is what he did. Why does God let some people go through very hard lives and keep serving God? So that others will see that God is still faithful and will give them the strength to go through hard times. Why do some people get to go through pretty easy lives and not have a lot of pain? I don't know. <laughs> you know maybe that's all they could handle. They wouldn't be able to stick, you know, stay with God because they weren't willing to have faith in him enough to trust him. I don't know. And I don't want to be judgmental on it, you know, because it is what it is. God, maybe they're so being, being so faithful that God says, I don't need to trust you. You already believe. And the more you understand that God is sovereign and that he is always in control, the easier it is to just walk through these things and say, I'm going to trust in God. And I, I do know sometimes I look back and say, wow, there's a lot of, lot of stuff been going on 
but I don't recognize him because I'm looking at, looking at Jesus during the, during the storm. Just like Peter, he got out of the boat, walked on the water with his eyes on Jesus, and then it says, and he noticed the waves, started sinking. Then he realized, what am I doing? Out, number one, what am I doing out on a lake with all this storm? Number two, why am I walking on water? I can't walk on the water. <laughs> and why would I be walking in the water in the middle of the storm? You know, all those things flooded in his mind when he noticed the waves. And he started sinking. At least he knew to call out to Jesus. But while his eyes were on Jesus, he was walking on the water, walking on the storm, maybe even above the, maybe even above the waves. Who knows? Nothing else mattered because his eyes were focused on God. Well, I've said things to people um, that it's very hard, like you just said, it's very hard to make that first step. But once you do, and you do focus on the way God sees it, by the scripture speaking to you, pull out some scripture verses that will encourage you, and then stay focused. And I usually say you have to get out of the perspective that you're in. You have to step over to this different look at it a different way and you'll see God in it. The one time that you do it, it will make the second time easier to do it. And then the third and fourth and fifth until it becomes a way of life. It becomes a way of life. And you're never going to do it perfectly. But for the most part, it's pretty easy for me to look and say, God, I don't know. You know my, my biggest statement is, God, I don't know how this is going to be for good, for anybody's good. But I know that you've promised it, and I know you're in charge. In verse 8, it says, Yea, you heard not. Yea, you knew not. Yea, from the time that your ear was not open, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called transgressors from the womb. Uh, just, just, just every single person that's ever lived other than Jesus. Yeah, that he goes, you, you don't know, you don't hear. You know, and he goes, I knew you weren't going to know, you weren't going to hear. But the most interesting thing, that you were, uh, and that you're called transgressors from the womb. We are born sinners. All right? And this has been said many times, and I've said it. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born sinners. We will sin. That is why Jesus was born of a virgin, so that he would not have a sin nature. He was born perfect. There's only been three perfect people in, that's walked on this world. Adam and Eve, until they fell, and Jesus. And Jesus never failed. They're the only people that were started out perfect with no sin nature. Everybody else has a sin nature. I never thought of Adam and Eve as being perfect, but I guess they were. They were, they were at start until they, until, they, until they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of, sin, of good and evil. They had no sin nature. They are the reason that everything turned into turmoil. They were given authority over, over the earth and the animals, and they gave that authority over to Satan by sinning, and the entire world was punished. Storms, earthquakes, tsunamis, uh, volcanoes, <laughs> vicious animals, thorns, thistles, goat heads. <laughs> you know, all the things that plague us are a result of Adam and Eve's sin. So when, when the devil tempted Jesus, he was hoping they'd be like you. He was hoping that he would get them to fall like Adam and Eve did. Because if, if he had been able to get Jesus to sin, there would have been no other hope. Because that was God. He would, he would have conquered it and he would have been better than God. <coughs> Adam and Eve weren't God. 
They weren't God, but they were created in his image and they were without sin until they committed their sin and they chose to sin. And nobody ever since has had a choice to sin outside of Jesus. This is the thing, evil from the womb. And this is something that, this is why so many people you know, say, well, I'm going to get to heaven by doing good things. Sorry, you can't. You were, you were condemned from the moment that you were conceived. The moment you were conceived, you were condemned because you were a sinner. Now, this is hard. It is hard that we look at somebody and say, well, this, this person's innocent. And we love to think of our children as innocent. But, you know, it, it doesn't take long to know that your, your, your little baby is a, is a significant sinner and then wants his own way or her way. You know, just think about this. From the very beginning, they are so selfish that when they want something, you have to drop everything you're doing to feed them or change their diapers. And they know that if they yell long enough and loud enough, they're going to get what they want. And then we have to break them of their selfishness. Now, that's the only way they can communicate. I understand that. But still, what they want, they want, and they want it now. Now, most of us don't grow much beyond that unless we get into God in the first place. What I want, I want it, and I want it now. And this is why when we see the world, the world lives in that system. I want it, and I want it now. And don't tell me I can't have it. I'm going to yell and scream until I get what I want. We look at this, and he says, you don't know, you don't, you're not hearing, you're not, you're not understanding. What's interesting is when you're not saved, you cannot hear, you cannot understand. And that's the sad thing about it. Without the Holy Spirit working on our hearts, we cannot hear, we cannot understand and it happens all the time. You, see, you talk to somebody who just gets saved and then all of a sudden they pick up the Bible and the day before they couldn't understand a word in the Bible, none of it made sense, and they pick it up the next, right after they get saved and everything starts to make sense. Doesn't mean they understand everything, but it's like, oh, this is a real book. Wow, look at all this information that's in here. And it becomes living and alive to them. And just a few minutes before, none of it made any sense to them because the Holy Spirit wasn't opening their eyes and revealing to them. You know, now we look at it and go, whoa, wow, whoa, look at this, you know, wow, you know. It's a, it's sometimes it's a daily thing, too, because sometimes when I give my daily things, I can read that verse like three times before it clicks. Mm -hmm. Or as we go through these Bible reading plans and we're on the third or fourth time of reading through the Bible and all of a sudden, and I, and I, and I joke about this all the time, I'll even turn to God and say, God, when did you put this verse here? You know, this is like the 40th time I've gone through, this, this verse has never been here before, and I know that it's been there. You know, but it was never one that all of a sudden stood out and said, pay attention to me, this is important. So for years I read through that verse and it doesn't mean a thing to me. You know, and I've heard people, they'll, they'll tell me, well, this verse really touched me. I listen to it and I'm going, okay, what, what touched you about it? Because <laughs> it still doesn't touch me. But it touched them and that's what's important. And I, I'm not going to tell them, yeah, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't mean anything. What are you talking about? I wanna, I'll say, tell me about what it means to you. And, and it's amazing sometimes when they'll tell you what it means. It may, even when they're done with it, it still may mean nothing to me, but it does to them, and that's all that really matters. That it means something to them, that the Holy Spirit has touched them, and it's what they needed for that moment of their life to get them through whatever was coming their way. And that's very important that we encourage one another and, and see what's going to happen from there. All right, verse 9. 
For my namesake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will refrain from them that cut you not off. Behold, I have refined you, but not with, not with silver. I have, chosen things in the, I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, even my own sake, will I do it. For how should I, my name be polluted? I will not give my glory to another. This is the beauty of what God is saying. He puts us in the refiner's fire. You know, he says, for my name's sake. And we've talked about this many times. Name is all of the reputation that goes behind the name. And God is always talking about for my name's sake. All the reputation that goes behind his name. All, that is, all of his attributes. It's sad to me that in our day and age, we don't make such a big deal of the name. But I know growing up, my dad always made a big deal of our name. This, you're a Wells, this means. <laughs> you know, uh, this means this, that, and, you know, and the other thing, and he made a big deal out of it. In today's world, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. Eh, you can get beyond your name or you can tear your name down. It doesn't matter. And there was all through our generations, name was all you had. If you didn't have a good name, you were in trouble. If, you're, if your family was, you know, was known because your, your grandfather was a town drunk, it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter how good you were. It was hard to live that name down and, and live above that name. And sometimes it worked the other way around. If you had a really good family name, you could get away with murder because you were supposed to be better and you probably were going to get better because you had a good family name. God says, for his name's sake, he will defer his anger. How often did God defer his anger? Well, from the creation to the flood, 1,500 years, 15 and a half, 1,542, I think is exactly what it is. He deferred his anger. From the flood to the Tower of Babel, he deferred most of his anger. From the Tower of Babel until the end days, he's pretty much deferred his anger. Now, he's dealt with, that, he's dealt with, with the children of Israel. From the Tower of Babel to their first... Uh, time that they were taken out of their country, God deferred his anger, even though they deserved so much more than they got. From the crucifixion of Jesus Christ till today, God has been deferring his anger. No, we don't want to see it when he gets really mad. I mean, it's bad enough when he says, I've, I've had a, just a little bit, and he starts giving discipline. Mm -hmm. But if you, don't, if you don't know what it is, start reading the book of Revelation and see in the in the over the seven trumpets and bowls and, the, and vials, 66% of the population will, of the world will die. It's a lot of people. So what about when they were walking the 40 years in the desert and, and the plagues would come on him? He wasn't angry then? Oh, he was angry, but he deferred his angry, anger over all of them. He took only the worst ones out. Okay. And part of that was he was trying to get them out. You know, in 40 years, he, to kill off the entire generation. Yeah. Oh, you still get, you're not getting everything that we deserve. And the flood is the first great example. Everybody in the world, except for Adam, Adam, Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives were killed. That's a lot of anger. Just a wee bit of anger, you know, to say, you know, 
Because if you, if, if you study how large the population was, I tracked it out and I believe there was probably about a trillion people alive at the time of the flood. All right, there was a lot of people. A lot more than we most usually think of. And even on small, even if I really reduced it, these guys didn't have very many kids and they didn't, you know, and there were wars and everything. I still had millions, hundreds of yeah. millions of people alive. More than what we have today, right? I, well, I believe it was in the trillions. I believe it was pretty close to where we are today. Really close to, we got four and a half trillion people in the world today. Uh, and so, and, and God wiped out all of them. However many there were, he wiped them all out except for eight. The sin that causes death and disease and corruption. Sin infected the cellular level and also the, entire, the entirety of nature. Revelation is God starting to pour his wrath out. And I'm just saying just starting to, and it's going to be pretty bad. Third, Two-thirds of all people die. A quarter of the water is wiped out and made, made impure. A quarter of the land is totally destroyed. I mean, there's going to be a huge amount of destruction. And even that is in his total wrath. Are we going to be spared? Christians will be raptured. We will be taken because that's our hope. And we will spend seven years in heaven at this marriage supper of the Lamb, being married to, our, to the one who bought us. Things will get really bad before we're taken, but we will not go through all the tribulation and the wrath that God's going to put on us, on the world. At the end of that seven years, which still isn't his full wrath, as bad as it is, it's not his full wrath that falls upon them because he hasn't come back to destroy again. He will reign for a thousand years, let Satan out so that he can trick the, the newborn people there in the, the thousand year millennial to, to rebel against God. He'll destroy all of them. Then we'll have the white throne judgment. Death, Hades, and, and uh, Satan and the demons and all those who have rejected Christ will be thrown into the everlasting lake of fire. He will destroy the, the current heavens and earth and create a brand new heaven and earth. That is when his final destruction comes. You put it all in a nutshell. That's, that's eschatology in a very, very quick <laughs> format. And the good news is, we get to live in the new heaven and new earth with God. Satan is not locked into this universe, according to Job. He gets to go into the court of heaven and stand at the courtroom of heaven to criticize, accuse, the, accuse and seek permission to attack. So he spends a lot of time in the courtroom of heaven trying to say, can I get this person, can I get this person? And God says, you can do this. You can go this far. And it's not, and I've said this several times, it is not just for the saved that he has to get permission to do anything to. Because if he had his way with the world, he'd instantly kill them so that they would spend eternity lost. God does not allow him to kill the, kill the world. Now, he gives them a lot of leeway with them because they technically don't belong to God, but he's not going to allow them to die until he's had the opportunity to present the gospel to them however many times he wants to present that gospel to him. But Satan just, because if Satan, if Satan had absolute ability to do what he wanted to to the lost world, he would just kill him. I'm not giving you no chance to get to know Jesus. I'm going to kill you when you're born. Matter of fact, your mother's dead too, so you couldn't have been born in the first place. It says, uh, 
For my praise, I will refrain for you that I cut you not off. So for, your, for his praise. And if you recall, there was a time when God spoke to Moses and said, Moses, I'm going to destroy all these people and I'm going to start all over with just you. And Moses said, no, that would, your name will suffer if you do that. People will say that you were powerful enough to take the people out of Egypt, but you weren't powerful enough to bring them into the promised land, as you said. And Moses was saying, for your name, God, you can't do this. Yes, they des- he didn't tell them he didn't deserve it. You know, but he says, no, God, y- your reputation is on the line. If you don't follow through, your reputation is on the line. And he says, I will do it for my name. Behold, I have refined you, but not with silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. This is not just a one-time thing. God puts us in the furnace of affliction. Why? To get rid of all the bad impurities in our life. He's saying, I want these things out. How does he get it? The first step he has to do is the very first step he has to do to get somebody saved. To get saved, the very first thing we have to do is realize that we're lost. I am a sinner in need of Christ. How many times has God taken something out of our life that we didn't even know was wrong in our life until he put us in a little bit of a hot, rough place, a furnace of affliction, and says, "Uh, this is something I want out. (laughs) Let's boil it up. Now you know it's there. Now you can start paying attention to it. Most of the time, we're going along all just happy, and we've got no problems in the world, and we start getting into the scriptures, and we go, God says, I want this out of your life. And if we're really good, we say, yes, God, I'm going to get rid of it. We don't need affliction to get rid of it. Unfortunately, that's not usually our answer when God points something out to us. I must have misunderstood that. I'm not going to really pay attention to it right now, or no, I'm not really ready for that to happen. And God says, but I am. And he puts us into places where he proves that it is a problem. God, you know, I, I really don't see myself as a gossip that much, you know, but, and every, but every time everybody looking at us knows we are, and they start showing us how much we are. God, you know, I'm really an honest person, you know, show us all the places where we're dishonest. God, you know, I don't really commit adultery that much. That much. <laughs> you know, and then he'll really show us, though, you know, it's not just physical. It's the mental places that we are and, the, and all of that. And he'll start showing us, he'll start showing us, you know, that we're really not that good. And he'll put us in the affliction. And he'll burn it out of us one way or the other. He's going to burn it out of us. I'm just happy he doesn't decide to do it all at once. Here's all your problems. Let's put you in a really big fire. Yeah, a little cinder left. <laughs> just, we'll, we'll burn you to a crisp. Whoops, a little, little too much fire. <laughs> you know, he does it just as they did with silver and gold. You heat, up, you heat it up, you melt it, the impurities start coming up, you, peel, you pull off the impurities, then you turn the, turn the fire up just a little bit more and more impurities fall up because if you didn't do it, then you burned, you burned it and you tarnished it. So he would keep turning the, turning the heat up and, and taking the dross off. Turn the heat up, take the dross off. Turn the heat up, take the dross off. God does that in our life. He refines us by turning the heat up smoothing off the dross. Then he, then he decides, oh, we need to get a little more out of you. He turns the heat up just a little bit more, takes a little more dross out. Just when you're comfortable with that temperature, <laughs> it up just a little more. And that's just it. We start getting comfortable and say, okay, 
And then we started getting a little cocky, probably. Oh, oh look, I got, I got my life put together. Which is why I, I always mention, you know, part of this is God looking down into our totally sinful heart. And light, the way I usually look at it is he, he turns on a little 10-watt bulb or a candle. And he starts cleaning out, cleaning out our heart. And we think, oh, wow, look how clean my heart is. Then he turns on a 10-watt bulb. And we go, oh, doesn't look so good. He gets it up to a 100-watt bulb, and it's like, you know, and we all know what it's like in your own house. If you just put a candle up there, they look pretty clean and dirty, you know, no dust, nothing. You, the more light you put on, the, on it, the more you see the dust and the dirt and the grime. God keeps doing that in our heart. He just turns up the light. Turns up the light. And even, and, you know, because we can get pretty cocky sometimes. You know, well, God, I no longer, I no longer steal. I no longer lie. I'm not, I'm not, not giving these looks to people. I'm, I'm telling the truth. And God says, okay, let me tell you what my definition of truth is. You know, let me tell you what my definition of honesty is. <laughs> let me turn the heat up on you and say you're not where you think you are. You know, and this is just it. The more we get to know God, the more we get to know his standards. And the more we get to know his standards, the more we find out we don't stand up to his standards at all. We cannot stand up to his standards. We will never be like God. Even when we are made perfect in our glorified state, we will not be completely like God. He will still be smarter, stronger, uh, more omnipresent, because we, there's no indication that we're going to be omnipresent in the new heaven and earth. We have a place that we will dwell. God doesn't dwell in one place. He's everywhere, and we really can't even fathom that. He will be everywhere, dealing with each one of us individually, even in heaven, as we walk with him, serving him, with whatever that means. And I don't know what it means to serve God in a perfect place, but you know, it would be wonderful. I've been very fortunate. I've had three, three careers in my lifetime, and I pretty much enjoyed each career. And, and I understand the statement that if you love the work you do, you never work a day in your life. And for the most part, at least when those jobs started, I have not had to work a day in my life because I enjoyed doing it. When I worked in the restaurants, I enjoyed it for a long time. Then it got to where it just got to be drudgery. When I was working in the computer world, I loved it for a long time. Then it got to be drudgery. I can't imagine pastoring being, being drudgery because I have enjoyed this. I have enjoyed teaching since the very beginning. <laughs> oh, I don't think this is work at all. This is fun. Pure fun that I can't ever imagine not. Because if nothing else, just watching people's lives changed is worth everything. I think um, pastoring is not a job, it's a calling. Well, it's definitely got to be a calling. Yeah. And I've always done the teaching and the ministering and the, you know, that outreach stuff. You know, so I've always been doing around the edges. I love, I love it because I don't look at this as a job. I look at this as so much, it's fun. It's fun teaching people. It's fun counseling people. It is fun helping them. It's not fun when they don't listen, but <laughs> it, it's fun doing it. <laughs> And, it, and even then, it's not that it's not fun. I feel sorry for what they're going to go through. And knowing that they're bringing it upon themselves is even worse. And, you know, it's sometimes very hard to say, why, why, why aren't you listening? Why, you almost want to go shake them. You know, <laughs> do this the right way. But you know that won't work either. And so we look at this and say, God is saying for his own sake, he's going to refine us. And he's going to do it for his, his sake. His glory. He refines us for His glory. And 
And he says, I won't give my glory to another person. He does things for himself, and he's not going to let anybody else claim that glory. And this is something that we as humans tend to do. It is Satan's big, big deception. The seven I wills. I will ascend to the throne of God. I will be like the Most High. And what was his temptation of Eve? You can be like God. What's his, te what's his temptation for all of us, even though it may not be that? You can be like God. You know, what is the problem of most people? <laughs> I'm the only one that's important. If it doesn't fit me, then it, it's not good. That is the basis of all sin. What makes me number one? What do I want? And when you've got trillions of people all wanting to be the most important thing that's ever hit this world, you've got a problem. This is why God says we are to serve one another. We are to love one another. We are to edify one another. We make him God and we serve others because he needs it's for his glory. And by serving him, then he says, ah, that's what I want. He said the, the first will be last and the last will be first. He's looking for people that are serving others and doing it with the right heart. It's easy for some people to serve others and do it just for the wrong reasons. They're just serving, you know, look how good I am. I, I just like to serve. It's quite another thing when you just say, God, I want to serve. Paul says, I've been poured out like water for you. If you pour water out, it just runs all over the place. It, you know, unless you pour it into another pitcher, it runs all over the place. And the picture that he was saying was, I'm just poured out for you, and I'm spreading out over everything for your sake. And this is where we should be with it. All of our goal is not to lift ourselves up. Our goal is for God to be exalted, which is why the martyrs can stand there and say, God, I'm willing to die if you'll be lifted up. And we see so many of these people in the Fox's Book of Martyrs that would cling, you know, their ropes had burned away from the stake and they clung to them praising God and worshiping God, you know, instead of jumping out of the fire saying, I'm free! <laughs> they would just be praising God, standing in the fire, saying, God, if this is what you wanted, I'm willing to go through it. You know, and I love, and I'm, where's where I'm going to end, I love Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego's statement to Nebuchadnezzar. Our God can deliver us from your fire, Nebuchadnezzar. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will serve him. They went in the fire fully expecting to die and were able to walk out because God wanted to use that as the message. But it wouldn't have been any less a miracle if they had gone in and others had seen, seen somebody's willing to serve a God, even if it means death. Sometimes God delivers. Sometimes he does not. All the apostles except for John died martyrs' deaths. And some of them died horrific martyrs' deaths. John got to die of old age. And it wasn't out of their lack of trying to kill him. They tried boiling him in oil. They tried poisoning him. They threw him on Patmos hoping that the other insane inmates would kill him. And he still did not die. <laughs> because God's hand was on him. And he said you know, told him that he'd live you know, until old age. And he died of old age. Most people do not get that privilege, you know, of the day. What has God got in store for us? I don't know. Doesn't matter. He's going to give us the grace to go through whatever it is 
that he's asking us to go through. Our world is getting harder. You know, we in America are spoiled. We think this world's a pretty safe place, but there's millions of Christians dying every year for Christ. There are millions of martyrs every year. It's coming to America. How long? I don't know. You know it's not safe to be a Christian in most of the world. And we need to prepare our hearts because it's coming and we cannot be shocked when it hits. So trust God. Know that he has a plan. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we thank you that you will always provide for us, always guide us, always keep us. We ask that you will be with us. Give us opportunities to share you with others as we go through this week and to keep following you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.